0: The Mind Sponsor for today is upcoming podcast series, Personality Sleuths. Personality Sleuths will be co-hosted by Dr. Jay Galen Buckwalter, whose career includes being the founding chief science officer of eHarmony and me, leveraging my experience as a venture capitalist and entrepreneur. We will analyze personality using a speech-based proprietary AI algorithm, along with the clues evident in social media and the popular press. Each episode will dissect the life of someone famous who gained the trust of many before becoming notorious for duping people, committing a crime, or losing exorbitant amounts of money, all while the clues were there all along and how they spoke. Tune in soon. Our heart sponsor for today is Decoding Success. Decoding success enables you to get a feel for the personality of the people with whom you are interacting passively, without alerting the party that you are doing it, such as would happen typically when a questionnaire is used, the only other means to capture the analyzable data. Using text from emails, messages, or a Twitter account, Decoding Success can optimize your chances for a successful encounter by prepping you ahead of time. Want to know about that entrepreneur and whose company you are contemplating an investment? Prior to the pitch meeting, want to screen which candidates will be best suited to join your team before you even meet them? Visit DECODING SUCCESS.com. On this episode, we have Andy Reamer. Andy was born in Boulder, Colorado, but grew up mostly in the D.C. metro area. He grew up homeschooled until high school. An avid soccer player, he was drafted by the LA Galaxy and loaned to a professional soccer club in Germany. An injury kept him from pursuing a career in sports. Based on personal experience, Andy gravitated towards psychology. He earned his undergrad degree at Georgetown University. He spent some time working in education analytics, including as a survey analyst at Magazine Education Week and at education company Classroom Champions, which pairs Olympians with underserved K-8 populations for mentoring. After earning a master's in education from Harvard, Andy has dabbled in entertainment, working for Netflix and CAA in analytics and social impact, respectively. He is board chair for TeenLine, a nonprofit mental health hotline for youth. Andy, thank you so much for being on our show.
1: Very excited to be here. Thanks so much, Asim.
2: No, it's really great to have you. I've been so impressed with your background and uh, we've interacted only a few times, but um, the passion with which you uh, do the things you do um, really um, resonated with me from from the outset. So uh, this, this show, this podcast is really about inspiring people. And uh, I'm certainly inspired by your story and the choices you've made and where you put your energy and time. And I just, uh, I'm certain that uh, our audience will will feel the same. So um, I, I really, of course, uh, you've you've certainly earned it. <laughs> um, I always like to start back at the the very beginning. And so, um, were you born and raised on the East Coast?
1: That's correct. Yeah. Um, so actually, I was born in Boulder, Colorado. Stayed there okay. for the first six years of my life, and briefly hopped over to Seattle, and then found myself in um, kind of the Northern Virginia area, Arlington, McLean, Herndon, Reston, that, that area over there. Um, and yeah, I'm the oldest of four siblings. There's a pretty big wow. difference between me and my youngest brother, but there's three years between me and my younger brother and then him and to my sister. Um, and we were all homeschooled until high school.
2: Wow, phenomenal. That's really yeah. great. Well, yeah. and, um, you know, Boulder, Colorado, I'm coming to learn is uh, quite a cultural mecca. Um,
1: it has so- been, and it's become one. I think when we first moved there, or when my parents first moved there, we were the only cul-de-sac that had folks of color. <laughs> it was my oh, okay. mom, who was Chinese, and then our next-door neighbor, who was um, a Chinese family, and then another group, uh, another family that was um, white Jewish, like my dad, and then everything else was kind of outside of that. But a lot has changed in 30 years. (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
2: absolutely. And what what brought your parents to Boulder and what uh, prompted them to move first to Seattle and then Virginia?
1: Yeah, so um, my dad was um, part of the team at Nextel. In the early days, oh yeah, of course, yeah. So, yep, yep. Um, The my one of my favorite ones, which was like a big yellow brick, and they had like the walkie-talkie function on it. Um, (laughs) Right. Yeah, that was that was one of my favorites in high school. I had that, Um, and so we moved. (laughs) We kind of followed the company to um, from Boulder to Seattle to DC. But my mom was actually um, finishing her residency when we first moved to Boulder, Colorado. Um, And then when my younger brother was born, uh, she decided to not practice and uh, homeschool us. Um, It kind of started out as an experiment and then all three of us really loved it. So we just kept on going with it.
2: Wow, phenomenal. No, that's really great. Um, And I imagine you had other social activities that allowed you to sort of engage with your peers.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, when we first moved to D.C., um, I was really into chess, and so was part of chess clubs, and um, we actually started a newsletter that's still in circulation today that's throughout Virginia, Maryland, Pennsylvania, um, for homeschooling families to get together, and it started with me wanting to play board games with People who were my age. And then it's turned into like getting group tickets to the Smithsonian or to other things like that and traveling around like a school group. Um, But it was also, I took Latin at a friend's house and his mom taught like a group of us, or we all chipped in and got uh, dissection kits together and learned biology that way. Um, Played a lot of soccer, baseball, and basketball growing up. Basketball was my was my first love of a sport. And I grew up um, right near Southlake High School, which is where Grant Hill went to high school. And so was a big Grant Hill fan and loved that he played multiple sports growing up as well and and had a lot of, um, of success in his career because of being able to play multiple sports and learning from different things like that.
2: Well, that's so fascinating because you also have a multiple sports story to your background. And uh, being an avid soccer fan, of course, being born in Germany, so being a particularly avid soccer fan of of German soccer, um, it always was uh, such a fascination to me. your background that you played professionally uh, in Germany.
1: Yes, briefly. I I was drafted by the Galaxy here uh, after I graduated from Georgetown and then played over in Germany um, in the Oberliga, um, but got my leg broken in the second game of my career. And so I had a try to recover from that, but had lost that half step step and never fully recovered. But I think in a lot of ways it was a blessing in disguise.
2: You have um, numerous talents. um, And so maybe that was just the universe saying that uh, your efforts off the field would do more (laughs) for humanity. Um, Although, you know, I, the emotional outpouring and uh, engagement and involvement that sports provides is uh, to me such a, a wonder, and also an ability to connect with people whom I may have another, never interacted with otherwise. So uh, I'm a Absolutely. big fan of it. And um, you know, kudos to you for uh, uh, taking it that far. And, and while you were playing Thank professionally you. in Germany, you were also coaching a youth team, which has yes, become a theme right. of your life.
1: <laughs> yes, yes. I was coaching a youth team there. It was a, a um, youth team, so it was mainly 12 and 13-year-olds. Yeah. And it was fascinating. Um, Really challenged my my German at the time, <laughs> and um, understanding all of their um, fascinating interactions. It was it was definitely a an interesting start to the um, to the year, where there was a lot of misunderstandings and fights that broke out within the team. Um, there, the the city that I was living in, or town that I was living in is known for its very fine jewelry, and so you have huh. some very wealthy families and then some very um, poor families who are more of the workers, and then all of them playing together. There's some, and you know, just being a twelve year old, there's a lot of um, conflict that could arise, and so we did a lot of uh, social emotional work, if you will, you know, figuring out how to Um, take yourself away from stressful situations, how to de-escalate situations, when to bring in an adult into conversations. And then they were playing 77 and they were, I think I had like 18 or 19 kids on the team. (laughs) So trying to get everybody equal playing time while still also trying to, you know, trying to win games as much as we could was a fascinating experiment, Um, but definitely allowed me an interesting peek into the, psyche of you know 12 13 year old kids and how broad their experiences can be but by the end of the year i think we had a really great team and i really enjoyed that experience of my life
2: amazing it's like you were the original ted lasso
1: <laughs> hopefully i'm a little bit more confident than ted but um <laughs> yes exactly
2: well um I, I take it by that uh <laughs> laugh that uh you've seen the series
1: I, I saw the uh, kind of the original skit that he did for it. I haven't watched the series yet, but um, you're the you're the third person in about a week that has mentioned the series. So I think that's something that my wife and I will throw on at some point when we're looking for a good yes. laugh.
2: Yes, well, it, that's the universe talking again, this uh, sort of density of mentionings. It's all coordinated, by the way. Uh, there's four more coming because we'll get to seven before we know you're going to actually subscribe. <laughs> Um no that was a joke mostly. Uh but uh, it's a it's a really good uh, uh at the end of it a feel good story. Um it's uh pretty timely. They they variety did a Q&A with the cast and uh hmm. I watched that. I don't typically do that but um the show has meant a lot to me. I mean part of it just passion for soccer but also the role that Jason and plays is Yeah. um it's really phenomenal and um yeah, to their credit they do a good job and it's been renewed for two more seasons at oh, least that's good um yeah they, it'll be a nice um arc to to follow but yeah I, I highly recommend it
1: excited yeah i'll check it out
2: yeah so um taking a little bit of a step back because uh, i'm very curious i want to chat a little bit about your decision to go to georgetown and your desire mm-hmm. to pursue psychology Um, you know, homeschooling, um, I think can be really effective because it, uh, speaks to the students' individual abilities. Um, but I wonder, uh, you know, your mom being a physician, um, did that kind of steer you towards the, the medical sciences some, and was that where your desire for psychology came up?
1: Yeah, I think it definitely rubbed off on me. I think my mom and I have a lot of similarities in regards to the topics that we find interesting and how we think about um, various different solutions and ideas and tra- challenges. Um, I also spent a lot of time at the Smithsonian growing up because the museums are free. So we just went over there a lot and, um, you know, during off hours, if you will, at, you know, noon, 1 p.m. Uh, after I was done with my my homework. Um, and so learning from the people who work there and like their very hyper specific area of knowledge was also really a oh, fascinating I like experience. Um, I think things definitely, I got interested in psychology as well because I was at a point in high school where I was really interested in the, the, the non binariness of the world, if you will. And, like, it seemed to me at the time, because I didn't get far enough into the medical space of, like, there's right answers and there's wrong answers. And I was like, I think there's some sort of in-between. And I got really interested into poetry at the time and reading it and writing it. And then um, when I was about 15 and a half, I guess it was, um, I was doing a driver's license, a driver's test and working on that and getting my hours up for that. And I met someone um, through that and we were sitting in the back seat and we were talking a lot um, and then I found out um, about a week after he graduated that she had died from from suicide and she had oh, nice. had in a purposeful overdose and there was a and I found out about it over Facebook and so I was like looking on Facebook if there were answers how to learn more about it and I was early on where I was trying to figure out my own um, difficulties with depression and what does that mean for me. And so I think that was kind of a strong uh, tailwind, if you will, into the psychology space and better understanding that. There was a little bit of me search in there as well um, and trying to better understand that realm. Um, and then I got into Georgetown because I was looking to try to play soccer in college and wasn't really a big time recruit. Um, I was looking at at a variety of different schools. I was trying to like walk on to some of the D1 schools that I got into um, and some of the D3 schools. Like, I think I would have gone probably to either University of Chicago or Tufts. Um, and then in March ish of my senior year in high school. Um, the Georgetown coach happened to see me at a practice and saw that, like, you know, I ran a lot of work really hard. I had decent enough skill and I had good enough grades that they were like, why don't you just come to Georgetown? I had not applied to Georgetown. And so what? I applied to Georgetown in March, got in and then <laughs> decided to, to go for it because it was the best soccer team that there was that I could be a part of and um, kind of came on as basically a little bit, uh, not necessarily a walk on, but you know, the last recruit and, um, I ended up scoring a goal and hitting the crossbar against then number one UNC in one of our first preseason games and was kind of first person off the bench, my freshman year and co-leading scorer and kind of moved on from there. Wow, phenomenal.
2: Well, there's always a need for a good, motivated center forward. (laughs) There's no question. Yes. yeah that's that's really a great story well done and uh, in terms of the energy and effort you put into that uh, to be able to perform at that level um what you shared just now andy was um really moving this um you know friend maybe more acquaintance because it was a, yeah. a driver's um and a kind of situation where you got to know them but uh you know the what you felt through it and and i really loved the way you framed it kind of An exploration of her was also an exploration of of you. Yes, And I think um, for many of us who are not professional clinical psychologists or psychiatrists devoted to that practice, for so many of us, um, those kinds of inquiry is um, really based on that uh, kind of mirroring or exploration of of ourselves. But I think that's a healthy motivation. It's a really good reason to to dive into that because we can we can learn. And um, I also sense that you were moved that you couldn't piece together any clues from your interaction that that would kind of be the end of her story.
1: That's right, that's right. Yeah, I think I was definitely interested in finding out how I could have done something different, how I could prevent this from happening again. Um, I think that's something that I, I constantly am trying to work on personally of like, what do I have control over and what do I not have control over? Um, but definitely it was it was also trying to grapple with at that time, like, what do I want to do with my life? what do, What is my passion going to be? What kind of impact do I want to have on others that even are acquaintances are tangential to my own life. Um, so I think that, I think I've, I've always felt like that in some ways, but it was definitely a pivot um, to being more dedicated in that space. And it's, I think also uh, reminiscent of how I was thinking about, or, or I've been thinking about over the past few years, kind of the sympathy, empathy, and compassion discussion I think Brene Brown has a really good discussion TED Talk on sympathy versus empathy, yes, um, which is which is great. And then I'm thinking about what is the difference between empathy and compassion, and, and I really love the word compassion because of the etymology of the word to mean struggle with, yeah. and how there's the empathetic muscle that we can continue to work on and try to imagine myself in your shoes but I could never be in your shoes because you are an individual that's so different from me. So when I think of compassion, I think about walking side by side with that person as much as I can. Um, And I think that this also talks about, um, you know, proximity to trauma, Brian Severson's concepts of proximity to trauma, wherein, um, you know, if we can feel compassion by being in proximity to the trauma or to the challenges that somebody is facing, we are more likely to feel empathy than if we're removed and feeling sympathy. I think about that a lot during these times of COVID when we're remote and you know, living in LA, it's very easy to kind of be in my house after I close my My computer screen for the day um, and kind of not think about the rest of the world or there are certain things that just don't come through as much as they did previously I think about often how I I want to constantly remind myself about the struggles that folks who are um, struggling with houselessness and homelessness right now and what they must be facing because since I'm not traveling anywhere I'm not necessarily walking in places that there are, um, you know, many folks who are, are, are faced with that challenge, how can that be top of mind, even though the proximity seems to have been much further away, while as I'm talking to somebody in Jordan, and they could feel close as we are right now. And so that proximity, I think, is is a really interesting concept when it comes to, you um, challenges empathy and compassion and trying to be collaborative in our in our search for more holistic solutions.
2: Couldn't agree with you more. Um, Our distance from uh, I love the way you framed it. uh, Our distance from trauma that others experience kind of um, uh, makes creates an apathy that um, because of that, that distance. And uh, I mean, imagine how the dialogue would be if we all knew of uh, um, people affected by, by DACA. Right, um, absolutely. We, we would uh, just interpret that in a very different way. And, and I think about my own family history. Uh, my, my grandfather was an industrialist living in what is present-day Pakistan as a, as a Hindu family. And at the time of the partition, there were Hindu families being slaughtered on the present day Pakistan side. There were Muslim families being slaughtered on the present day India side. Um, it was my grandfather's Muslim friends that helped him and mm. my two year old at the time father and his siblings escape. Wow. And it just, to me, that highlights so meaningfully. That um, if you see people in the same roles that you have in your life,
0: Mm.
2: as a father, as a son, as a brother, sister, mother, daughter, um, it's very hard to hate. Hate comes from anonymity. Mm. Um, Discrimination comes from anonymity. If you just say like, well, that group over there, and if you just think about it that way, then that's a lot easier to have negative feelings towards them. But if you think of them as, you know what, they're just like me, mm-hmm. then it's it's much harder. And so um, what you've just described, I feel like is is another nuance of that. Um, being familiar or exposed to the kind of trauma that others go through enables us to be able to, to help them in a meaningful way and being yes. distant from it. And so, I mean, that's it's almost a prescription for our lawmakers, isn't it?
1: Perhaps. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with everything that you said. And I think it's also on the on the shoulders of those that have privilege to make sure that they expose themselves and make themselves vulnerable and open to these conversations. You know, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about masculinity and reading about it. And I've talked about it at various different places. And one of my pet peeves is that, you know, when fathers talk about how they really care about gender equity because they have a daughter. It shouldn't necessarily take you having a daughter to have that desire and that concern. And I think that, again, if we're using that example, having the vulnerability and the openness and the willingness to face your own shame, which is something that um, men growing up are not necessarily given the chance to explore I think that is a a calling for folks as you're saying with lawmakers with other leaders and with other folks that have the privilege and the power to to escape those discomforts which is one of my favorite definitions for privilege is being able to escape discomfort Um, I love that but how do you then utilize that privilege and that access to power and your your call as a leader to put yourselves in the in the same places experience that listen to the people openly and and be as vulnerable as possible to have those conversations um and again i think it's great any any way that anybody can get into discussing gender equity and really facing that um but i think that it is a an easy crutch, if you will, if I can be critical about that, to fall back on, you know, oh, I have a mother, a daughter, a sister, and therefore I care about um, gender equity. I think we can open ourselves to being more vulnerable to that. And also hearing more perspectives then, because then you're hearing a very um, narrow perspective of only those in your family, um, which again, extremely important. And also there are other perspectives that are important as well to help shape what our goals are. One of my favorite things that I heard, I believe from Kaya Stern when I was at grad school um, was focused on, it's easy for us to, it's easier, maybe not easy, but it's easier for us to point out injustices. And for the most part, we can say, oh, that is injustice, that, that feels wrong harder thing to do is envision what justice is and how do we then communicate that vision and imagination with each other so that we can collaboratively get there. And that's the the hard part, I think, um, of how do we get, once we name it, how do we step together to reach those goals?
2: Yeah, that's uh, incredibly well said. Um, so many wonderful areas to to dive into there. Of course, we'd uh, end up with a six-hour episode <laughs> if, I, if I kept going into it. But right. I, I, while we're, uh, I mean, we're still kind of in um, your Georgetown, post-Georgetown. Yeah. Era, um, I did want to ask you from that time period, uh, pre-college, mm-hmm. um, you've spent a lot of time on um, equity and inclusion um, in your career, um, and also now a very strong voicing for concern around gender equity. Um, can you tie that to any specific events or experiences you had while while growing up? I mean. I, I faced a fair amount of racism growing up in the US and it was Central Jersey, um, uh, elementary school and um, a little bit in high school, but a little less so than, than there. And that's obviously impacted how my orientation with the world and my desire to be of help. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm just curious and, and I again very moved by your point and you share about this this friend who had committed suicide. So I yeah. was wondering if there are other examples of that or situations.
1: Yeah, I think that there were that there were probably several um, that guided me to there. I think a lot of it had to do with my mom and dad who are empathetic individuals and um while we were very well off and privileged, um, we were always kind of, I don't think that necessarily ever defined us and we, our mom and dad were always conscious of how do we push past those bubbles growing up, even Mm -hmm. before this concept of bubbles, I think really took off. Um, I think for myself as somebody who is mixed race and is uh, white identified often, I found myself in a variety of different situations. So I found myself playing street soccer with Chilean and Uruguayan and and Ecuadorian folks and then played street basketball and then went to chess club, as I mentioned earlier, and then, you know, went to private school and high school. Um, And there was a lot of different conversations that I had and I realized how how much i think at an early age i didn't have the words for it but i realized the privilege that i had and i also realized the um the discussions that were going on in each of those groups and especially in the groups that were more economically and socially privileged like at private school how they were um while being well-intentioned most of the time some of the time there was also a disconnect between their actions and the impact that it had on individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think human dynamics has al- have always interested me, systemic um, and social um, challenges have always interested me. And then I think also from my mom, especially, it's like questioning why things are like, th- that I think I spent a lot of my homeschool life just asking questions of like why or or challenging, thinking about like why facts came about to be the way that they are. Why did certain words come to be the way that they are? Why are certain? Uh, I, I we had a very logical approach to religion, not logical. That's the wrong word. Historical, I think, is the right word. Where we read a lot about the histories of religion. Both my mom is uh, grew up Catholic. My dad grew up Jewish. Um, and we celebrated both holidays, um, but we took a very historical approach, I think, is the right way of putting it, of of understanding the creation of this, understanding why religion is important, um, and, and how people develop community around these religions. Um, I found that to be really interesting. I was almost a a theology minor in college, actually, because I found that so interesting and was taking a a wide variety of courses. But um, yeah, I don't know. I think all the things Mm -hmm. that I just rambled on about (laughs) have (laughs) led me to this point.
2: Gotcha. Well, and you went to a Jesuit school?
1: (laughs) That's right. Yes. Yes. Well, I think that was part of it, right? When when you're called to be meant for others, and there is such a clear disconnect in some ways between men and others (laughs) and like where you are and who you're supposed to serve. And there's a kind of an unintentional, maybe, uh, um, the vision and like a reaching down that's always kind of seemed uncomfortable, wrong. It was the, it's the Brene Brown thing of sympathy. And I think, um, that that's something where I was just constantly questioning it, and but it was also you know I found in the you know um, the Jesuit meditations and prayers that was my kind of first introduction into meditation and breath work. That was that is still an important aspect of my life, and I think had a positive impact. And I learned about it more in my professional sporting career of how that how breath and recovery um can impact how optimal you perform, but also how empathetic you can be, how collaborative you can be, other key aspects yeah, like so that. True.
2: Yeah, I'm actually very keen on that topic of mindfulness in, in sports and yes. its kind of a proliferation. Um a lot of people are getting involved, but I think there's a bit of a riddle yet to be solved of um, how do you get people who aren't accustomed to meditating to actually meditate? Um, Indeed. but more on that later, um, yes. uh, post-graduation, um, you, you, had a number of roles. And of course, after you came back from, from Germany, um, that were more quantitative in nature and sort yes. of a, an analytical use of your psychology understanding and background um, so you got involved with some groups and analyzing survey data and, and yeah. I think crafting surveys as well. Maybe just some highlights of those experiences if you could share.
1: Absolutely. My first real job, if you will, after playing soccer was um, was working at a lab at George Washington um, under um, Dr. Cho Kim there. And we were focused on Asian American masculinity. And specifically we were looking at Jeremy Lin and how media were portraying him but then also how in-group Asian Americans were portraying Jeremy Lin as somebody who you know kind of had a uh, successes when going to Harvard and and being successful there and then also being an athlete and how both in and out groups were t- treating them there so that definitely was a fascinating piece and that led me into working at EdWeek, that is a, um, a very large and, and great online uh, magazine focused on education, especially in the US. And I was a survey analyst there. So as you mentioned, creating and analyzing surveys. And one of the last surveys that I helped create and analyze there was around um, Dr. Dweck's mind, um, uh, oh. growth mindset. Yeah, and sure. it was around the time where she wanted to clarify what she meant by growth mindset, because it had kind of gotten into the, um, common language pop pop psychology of the world. Um, and she felt like it was missing the core pieces of, of what she meant by growth mindset and perhaps was even being uti- utilized as a tool to, um, to blame students instead of support them. Mm -hmm. And so we wrote this really interesting survey and and report. Um, And one of the interesting findings was that there was a large percentage of folks who said that they utilize growth mindset in their teaching when we interviewed or surveyed thousands of, of teachers across the U.S. And yet many of those, or many of those also utilized a phrase like don't worry, you're just not a math person as a way of giving feedback to students, which is obviously not aligned with growth mindset. Um, However, they were also really fascinated and wanted more resources to learn more about growth mindset. Um, So this also got me super interested in language of of creating surveys and writing surveys and analyzing them and the real critical importance of language, um, which I am, working with one of the, with the head of, of um, communications for ACLU SoCal, um, Marco Benigno, who's really fascinated by this as well and trying to support ACLU and trying to figure out, okay, how do we best utilize language that aligns and promotes the issues that we want to talk about? So for example, the book, Don't Think of an Elephant, I believe it's called, you know the concept is if I say don't think of an elephant you think of an elephant that's
2: all we're thinking about (laughs) exactly
1: so if we say if ACLU's you know or activists say immigrants are not criminals well unintentionally you are now equating immigrants and criminals and so Mm. there are discussions on like how do we better frame language again in the squishy words that we have today like diversity, diversity could mean very something very different to you than it does to me, equity, inclusion, community. These are all really squishy words that I find really fascinating. And I think that it's that they should be squishy, but they should also be defined for the particular context that we're talking about and knowing that these words will draw particular images and ideas and emotions. From people when we say these when we say these words, so um, yeah, that got me really interested into that space. I joined a great nonprofit called Classroom Champions that pairs. Right. Yeah, you were there for Olymp- a few years. Yes, they're awesome. Um, the co-founder and CEO over there, Steve Messler, is a gold medalist in bobsled. His sister, oh. who he co-created the organization with, has her doctorate in education, and they pair Olympians and Paralympians with low resource classrooms across the US and Canada and some of the Caribbean now for a school year long discussion and mentoring program on social emotional learning. And it's just, it was in the earlier days where social emotional learning was kind of getting off the ground and like math teachers really wanted to incorporate it in and their principals may have been like, what does that have to do with math? Um, and right. it was just fascinating to be there during that time. It was fascinating to kind of take the academic readings that I was, that I was learning in the social emotional learning space and breaking it down into prompts for our athletes who told stories about teamwork and goal setting and, and grit and, um, all of these interesting social emotional learning topics where and they were able to share stories both from their childhood as a student but also in their day-to-day life as an elite athlete at the top of their sport. Um, and these these students, you know, from K through high school were just entrenched and really loved having a mentor who was could pop in once a month, and talk to them about a particular topic, and um, have a curriculum that was being utilized throughout. And each month, they would come up with a project where they would then send it to the athlete to re- to review, and and they would give their correct congratulations back. It was a, it still is just an incredible organization.
2: Oh, that's fantastic. So it's still uh, in operation. They're
1: Absolutely. And growing wonderful. and still growing. And they were just at ISTE, wow. um, the virtual ISTE conference that just happened. So right. um, they're great. Yeah. Highly recommend um, folks check them out because they are doing some really, really incredible work in supporting yeah, teachers yeah. in classrooms.
2: That's phenomenal. Um, let's talk about grad school.
1: Yeah. 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 So um, my wife... Uh, had applied and got into the Harvard Graduate School of Education um, while I was working at Classroom Champions, and she was focused on technology, innovation, and education. She was a a preschool teacher, then was a producer at PBS Kids, um, and came to grad school as a pivot to both dive more deeply into equity and inclusion work, but also into research and trying to figure out what the next step is in her own career. And I found her experiences to be just incredible. So I was lucky enough to apply and get in the following year. Um, I was an equity and inclusion fellow. Um, So did a lot of work in diversity and inclusion trainings and facilitation work as on campus as well as off campus. And then I was a human development and psychology uh, focus there but focus on a wide range of of issues and um, one of my favorite courses there was uh, critical race theory and education and took the um, 100 plus year old concept of, of critical race and applied it into education and across the way which I think I, I, I reference quite often in my day-to-day work um, and then Um, also that, that winter when I was home, uh, visiting my family for winter break, I heard from my brother who was in high school at the time that, um, he knew of three friends of friends who had all died from suicide and because they had died from suicide in other schools, but everybody knew each other because at the time Snapchat, um, there may have been a ripple effect going on, there may have been, uh, but there was definitely not enough resources being given to him and his friends around how to um, deal with the grief that they might've been feeling. Um, and it reminded me of the time that my friends, my, my friend died from suicide. And so I thought about that and, and ended up developing a idea for a company um, this was a uh,
2: self-healing and loving dialogue?
1: Yeah, SHIELD. Yeah. Um, so that was the idea was how do I create a platform wherein young people can more inclusively and accessibly find the resources best for them? Before we started recording, we were talking about you know how there's still a lot of work to be done with destigmatization. Yeah,
2: yeah And there's so a true.
1: lot of really great organizations doing that work. And then once you get to a point where you're willing as an individual to talk about the mental health challenges that you're having or that others are challenging, there's still a massive gap in actually accessing those resources in high school and middle school and college. There's there's a gap of, do I use online or offline? Walking into a door, setting up you know, on college campuses, the mental health facilities may be like, in the middle of campus, like where everybody exactly. can see you walking in, or it could be like in yeah. a darkened alley in the, you know, underneath in, you know, in fluorescent lighting, both no, of which true. are probably not ideal places and, and have their own challenges for exactly. accessing them, yeah. let alone that there's the intersectionality of it all of how and who um, it, are the colleges or nonprofit or mental health resources focusing on and are there is their language is their mission is their operation set up so that is as inclusive as possible for for all um, young people and so what about trying to create a platform which would basically act like an open table platform wherein a young person could come on check a couple of boxes identity issue concern area and then be populated with um, online offline opportunities free versus cost on campus versus off campus um, and the team that, that I built and I were were very lucky to be in the finals of the Harvard Business School new venture competition um, we were That's incubated great. over the following summer at the iLab there yeah it was a great experience and it also made me really interested spending a lot of time at the business school I was really interested in corporate responsibility and how corporations were being run as I spent most of my time previously in the nonprofit world. And so um, when I decided to pass that off to the chairperson on board, that's when my wife and I and our 96 pound dog decided to drive across country to LA.
2: (laughs) Fantastic.
1: Yeah. Wow,
2: no, that's uh, quite a transition. And then um, you dabbled a bit in the entertainment world working with both Netflix and CAA. Um, yeah. yeah, share with us a little bit about that, but I also wanna make sure we have time to chat about Sideports your uh, latest endeavor.
1: Absolutely, I can, go, I can go a few minutes over too. Um, okay. So, um, my wife and I decided to move to LA because um, Sam, she had always wanted to be a writer mm. um, for Kids Media. And so we decided to take the leap and we're lucky enough to have um, family over here that we could stay with, as well as kind of the um, financial foundation where we could kind of take this risk. Um, and when we were over here, we kind of, on our drive over, whoever wasn't driving was sending out cold LinkedIn's to people and trying to set up copies <laughs> for when we arrived and, oh, that's and everything clever. like that. Yeah. And so within the first few months she had spoken to like nearly every single major studio in LA and I had spoken with like headspace and other really great organizations, um, found a consulting job with Netflix where I was working on their rating system, which was really interesting. So basically yeah. watching shows, especially kids shows. And they had a very complex list of, of, uh, qualitative, um, decisions and, and buttons to press depending on what you saw and coded throughout the show. It was fascinating. They so have a interesting. really interesting and in-depth rating um, recommendation System. software yeah. behind them. Yeah. Um, brings up a lot of questions around, you know, who's coding and bias and all these other things, which I think they're, they're doing a decent job of grappling with and continuing to iterate on. Um, and then I found myself at CAA. It was an amazing experience. I was there for um, uh, about a a little bit over a year. Um, I was a part of their social impact team, which technically fell under the um, corporate marketing umbrella um, and brand umbrella. So I was working mainly with the Alzheimer's Association and other Uh companies. and It was a fascinating experience working in that space. CAA obviously has just incredible reach as a talent and brand agency who represents folks everything from, um, you know, uh, let's see, Beyonce, Lady Gaga, sure. all the big names, big names. Um, yeah. but also lesser known talent and and big big brands like Athlec and not as big brands. So. I think they are they just do some really interesting work and have such breadth. Um, and met some really incredible people there. Um, I had the experience and the opportunity to chat with some talent who were interested in masculinity in particular, and masculinity and mental health and intersections of that and Asian American identity, which was a really great experience. Um, yeah. I had the opportunity of running a, a panel at Ad Week in um, in New York City that was focused on masculinity, mental health in the workplace, um, where I had um, a professor who studied masculinity and wrote a book called um, "Why the Patriarchy Persists." Um, I had somebody who runs a, a nonprofit focused on on masculinity, both with athletes but also with um, employees. Um, we had the CEO of Harry's, and we had an actor from um, from a from a recent show that was talking about um, masculinity and and um, various various aspects of his own life outside of acting and in acting. So it was a really fascinating Amazing. conversation. Um, yeah. But there was, you know, I think all of those opportunities were so critical in better understanding the broader corporate space, but also here in LA being such an entertainment dominant um, world allowed me to meet such a wide range of folks um, that I continue to keep in touch with and talk with over the past few years.
2: Yeah, Amazing, that's so great. Um, as exciting as those were, you made a move to uh, Sideporch.
1: Yes, yes. So I had the opportunity um, a little over a year ago to meet Sean Kneerum, who is the co-founder and CEO of, of Sideporch. Um, he has a fascinating background wherein he was a baseball coach and high school teacher turn phd candidate um, who focused on a wide range of things having to do with um, global economies and literacy and um, got his phd in comparative literature and then uh, was chief of staff for the macarthur foundation for a few years then was chief of staff for um everything Jeff Skoll related for a few years oh, yeah. and then started side porch about five years ago and side porch as an organization works with values, driven companies who want to make a, an organizations broadly who want to make a positive difference in the world. And that could be a wide variety of things, but really what we focus on is helping organizations develop a foundational ethos from which strategy operations are built upon and then partnerships excel their impact from there. So that could look like working with a group of scientists out of MIT and um, who have created um, nuclear fusion and are going to revolutionize the way that we think about energy and help them we help them develop a business plan help them raise Their Series A, which I believe is in the 200 million plus range now, all based off of an ethos where they actually denied a VC coming in who would have closed their initial round because it didn't align with their ethos. Um, And so they are kind of off and running and we continue to advise them. It could look like helping um, Girls Inc., Um, which I was a part of and and was one of my first roles at this company um, focused on developing a five-year growth plan and in the middle of this, you know, COVID hits and so how do you think of and how do you support an organization who is nationwide, international in Canada as well, who's so reliant on in-person mentorship, think about how to expand their reach, how to expand their reach and keep their mission of, of supporting the most vulnerable kids and young girls, especially young girls of color. Um, and, and we saw just some amazing work happening across the country from from these Girls Inc. leaders of running food drives, of quickly transferring their work online, of, of really keeping everything, um, centered on the young girls that they were serving. And so that's just an Amazing. incredible organization that we were very fortunate to support. Yeah. Um, and then now in the COVID times, we are working in three main ways. We're working with kind of emerging technology and, and um, especially in the diagnostic surveillance testing world and starting to work in the vaccine world of how do we connect those that have the technology with those that need it most um, and how do we vet groups in this space? There's a lot of area for malintentioned and well-intentioned people who just can't hit the mark um, to kind of fall through the gaps or not best serve the the folks that need it most and the folks that want to return to work. Um, so we're doing that. We're working in a consulting manner with cities and municipalities and organizations and companies on how to develop policies and practices of how to come back to the office or how to serve their constituents best or how to think about um, the future of you know, vaccine plus testing. And then how do you get access to the vaccine? Who gets the vaccine first? All of these ethical, moral, sure. um, logistical issues. Yeah, and then so. we're also working in global supply chain. So working <laughs> across the world on trying to figure out how do we best um connect again our number one thing on our every time that we develop a vetting Google Sheets, the first first column is always values of the organization. And that's the first question we ask the folks. Um, Because when things go wrong as they tend to do in the pandemic and in urgent times, you want to make sure that you're working with folks who are mission-driven to to the extent possible. Um, So that's been really fascinating. We've been also working with um, ASU and Gates on the future of higher education and how do you Mm. support uh, minority-serving institutions and students who are uh, students of color as well as students from low-income backgrounds as they were already underestimated and underserved in higher education and were impacted the most by COVID, and were impacted the most by the move to remote. And so, how do you support the faculty and the students who are wanting to have? A, and there could be an even better experience in the long term of being remote. Being asynchronous opens right. up a lot of equity. Having um, individualized learning opportunities to be active learners and active educators are all possibilities in this remote world Um, but many are either kind of hoping and wanting to go back in person which is we don't know when that might happen and or are trying to you know take their current lecture and shove it into a zoom room which yeah is going to present its own set of challenges so we're trying to work on that and um yeah, it's amazing a, a the lot
2: of things. The, yeah, the richness of uh, projects you're involved with, but uh, the common thread is clearly you're applying yourself to problems of uh, social impact and and really trying to do Um, some amazing good in the world. And I have to say, it seems like it's particularly well-suited for your personality and, and passion profile. So uh, kudos on, on finding a great organization and a great home in that way. Appreciate it Um, very much. Yeah, absolutely. Andy, this has been such an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for your willingness to be vulnerable on, on this show and talk about some, very uh, seminal events and uh, experiences you had in your youth that have really informed and driven where you allocate your time and energy today. And, and I must say it, it uh, kind of the episode uh, feels like a poem, uh, just to how you've, you've managed your life and the, the themes that you've uh, picked up on and selected. So uh, really such an honor to have you on the show. It's been hugely inspirational for me and as I um, uh, surmised at the beginning, uh, I do feel it's going to be very inspirational for the audience.
1: I so appreciate that, Asim, and I appreciate what you're doing with the Chief Podcast. I love listening to the stories of the folks that you bring on. So very, very grateful to, to, to add my story into the mix as well.
2: Absolutely. Thank you again, Andy. really appreciate it.
1: Thank you, Asim.